Look with me at James chapter 1. Harry has been teaching out of James, and I just kind of wanted to uh, do something that went along with what he is already teaching. And no, I'm not going to teach through a section of James, but this is where we're going to start. James chapter 1, verse 22 says, and all of you are familiar with this, Harry's been through this, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror, for he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So I wanted to do this morning was just to teach something that's along the same vein here. Something that helps us just practically think through how do we better apply what we learn at church. Here at Grace Church, we hear so many sermons. How do we take that, what we learn, and distill it down and really apply it to our lives? I don't know about you, but there's been many days where I go home from church and, you know, what I heard that day, the message... I really don't reflect on it much after that. And that's really what James is talking about here. You sit and you listen to a message and you walk away and you don't ever reflect on how it ought to change your life. And so this morning, I hope to just look at a passage that's going to teach us a little bit how to continue to, as we hear messages, to apply them to our life, what we need to do in order to better do that. So if you are like me, and you have listened to a sermon and walked away and completely forgot the ugly picture you saw of yourself in that sermon without applying it, this sermon is for you. So go with me to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. And I am not going to preach the whole sermon to you. Several of my seminary friends asked me if I was going to read the whole thing. We are not. We are not. Mark Dever could pull it off, but I could not. (laughs) So we're going to read Psalm 119. We're going to be in verses 33 to 40. The psalmist says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, And I will keep it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. Lead me in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Behold, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give me life. The previous stanza here 
It was a contrast between the way of the psalmist and the way of God. And in our text today, the psalmist is giving us some direction how we keep from walking in our own ways and walking in God's ways. But it's important as we look at this psalm that we understand the tone and the sense and the weight behind it. The psalmist here is in a desperate situation. He's in desperate need of God's intervention or he will utterly fail. And the psalmist's desperate uh, situation is evident as he uses nine imperatives to plead with God to do a work in him. In the English language, we just use imperatives for commands. Do this, do that, go here, go there. But in the Hebrew language, the imperative was used to express an urgent, an urgent need, an urgent desire. Think if you were on the edge of a cliff and you slipped and you were holding on, you would cry out, help me. Because your life was hanging in the balance. You're not commanding someone to help you, but you're in such desperate need that you cry out for help for anyone who will listen. And the psalmist here issues nine of those cries to God. And that's the sense of the text. The psalmist is in desperate need in a life-threatening situation, but not from foe, but from his own heart of following his own ways. That's the sense of the text today. So as we read these requests, these pleas, we need to hear them as urgent, life-threatening requests from the psalmist to God. And this urgency is in the context that if God does not answer, the psalmist is going to fall back into the practice of doing things his own way. The psalmist knows that if he's left to himself, he will just live for himself. Therefore, he pleads with God to help him walk in his ways, to walk in God's ways and not his own selfish ways. We're going to break this section up into three parts. And I've titled this message, The Devoted Disciple. We're going to see from this text that the believer must be devoted to external application of God's word, to the internal inclination of God's word, and the devoted disciple must be devoted to a holistic dependence upon God. So external application, internal inclination, and holistic dependence. Let's begin with external application in verses 33 to 35. The devoted disciple must learn and obey. The devoted disciple does not just hear God's word. He puts it into practice. Verse 33 again says, Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. First, he uses here the covenant name of Yahweh. The psalmist knows that Yahweh has entered into a relationship with him 
He is invoking this name because he knows that Yahweh stands ready to help him. That's one thing that is evident throughout the Psalms, that Yahweh stands ready to help all who cry out to him. And this also informs us of where the psalmist's dependence lies. It's not on himself. He completely depends upon God. So he invokes the covenant name of Yahweh that he might help him. Second, he says, teach me the way of your statutes. And the word for statutes here, it's one of several words that the psalmist uses to refer to the word of God, to scripture. But more specifically, this word refers to the unchanging boundaries. This word was used when God created the world and he created the land as boundaries for the water. That's the word that's used. It also came to be used for things that were carved into stone. They were permanent boundaries. They were to last forever. And so the psalmist here, his first urgent request from God is that God teach him the way of his statutes. He wants God to teach him the boundaries of his ways that he might not transgress them. The psalmist recognizes that if God does not teach him the boundaries of his way, that he will inevitably fall back into his own way of doing things. Now step back for a moment and look at this. This, The psalm, this psalm, Psalm 119, I'm sure most of you have read it, but it is a magnificent work all on the word of God. Is it an excellent exaltation of God's word? How important it is in the life of the believer. If there's anyone who knew the word of God, it was the person who wrote this psalm. Now, if the person who wrote this psalm sees himself as urgently needing to be taught God's word more and more, how much more so are we in dire need of it? If the psalmist here sees himself as in a life-threatening situation where if he, if God does not help him, he will fall and stumble, how much more so do we need to beg God to teach us his word? There's great humility from the psalmist here. We cannot ever think that we have learned enough. I'm sure there's many of you here who have hundreds of MacArthur sermons in you. We must all see ourselves in the same dire need of crying out to God for more of his teaching. For if we do not, we will inevitably fall back into our own way of doing things. And that's exactly what he was, the problem in the previous stanza. If you look at verse 25, he says, my soul clings to the dust. Verse 26, the reason when I told of my ways in verse 26, put false ways far from me. That was his problem in that stanza was he was going his own way. And if we do not beg God to continue to teach us, we will inevitably do the same thing. 
So following this urgent request for Yahweh to teach him, he also makes a strong commitment to keep what God teaches him. Look at the the second half of verse 33. He says, Teach me, O Yahweh, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. So the psalmist here, he is making a strong commitment to continually keep the word of God that is taught to him. That, I, that word for keep there has the idea of diligently guarding or watching something. That is, you diligently watch your own life to make sure it aligns with God's word. Make sure it aligns with what you are learning here at church. And as you read the Bible throughout the week, and in the Hebrew, there's the continuous There's the idea of continuous action. This isn't just something he sits down and does one day, but he continually guards and keeps his way. He continually watches it to make sure it lines with God's word. And he says, I do this to the end. He makes a very strong commitment here. We ought to have the same resolve to obey what we hear taught here at church. He goes on in verse 34, still talking about external application. He says, give me understanding that I may keep your law. This request for give me understanding or make me understand, it could also be translated as teach. It's a synonym for teaching there, but there's a little bit of a difference. The first word for teaching there was the same root word that the Torah The word Torah comes from, which is the word for law. It had to do with instruction, discipline, training. But the word here for make me understand is more focused on the understanding and the right application of what is being taught. This word here in verse 34, make me understand. If you put it in noun form, They actually translate it as wisdom in certain texts. So that's what the idea here is. He's asking God to give him wisdom. It has to do with discernment. He's asking God to make him discerning that he might keep his word to obey what is being taught. Now, why is all this important? The psalmist, he's asked God to teach him the facts. And now he's asking God to give him the discernment to know how to rightly apply that knowledge. And this word for understanding here, it's not just referring to knowing what is right and knowing what is wrong. That's part of it. But it also has to do with knowing what is better and what is best. Not just the way to apply God's word to your life, but how can you best apply what you're learning to your life? What is the best thing to do in this situation? How does God's word best apply in this situation? The psalmist doesn't just want understanding to know what sin is, but he wants wisdom to know how to better apply it, to know what's best. 
You see, the psalmist here, he isn't content just knowing facts. He wants and he's begging God here to give him understanding so that he can apply them to his life. So that he might keep God's word. So the psalmist, he commits not only to keeping the law, but look at the end of verse 34. Give me understanding that I might keep your law and observe it with my whole heart. He commits to observing it wholeheartedly. What's significant here is the term for heart. We, in the English language, we use the term for heart to refer to the seat of emotions. If something moves us, then that has to do with our heart. If we see someone who's hurting, we are moved to compassion. But in both the Hebrew and the Greek, the heart was not the seat of emotion. It was actually the the control center of the person, the intellect, the will. So what does that have to do with this? Because of the use of discernment and understanding, I think the psalmist has in mind here that he is committed to obeying God's law with all of his intellect. So let me ask you, do you depend upon God to give you wisdom? And are you committed to making decisions with all your intellect on how to apply what you have learned. How much intellectual power do you spend every week just thinking about how to apply God's word, the things that you have learned? My wife and I, we've had some opportunity to do some counseling since I've been through the classes and she's been through the, the Logos classes with Bill Shannon. And so we've done some counseling. And as we have counseled people, the next week is coming up. And so we would sit down with each other and we would talk about, okay, what does this couple need? What does this person need? How can we, you know, what verses can we press upon their soul for them to apply to their life? And how can we best utilize the scriptures so that this person can grow? And as I reflected on that, as I taught this, you know, counseling is really just targeted discipleship. And we really ought to do that same thing for our own life. The areas that we're struggling with, we ought to sit down and say, how can I better apply God's word to my life in this area? What verses do I need to memorize in order to grow in this area of my life? We ought to be doing that in our kids' lives. The psalmist here commits to observing God's commands with his whole heart, with his entire intellect. The diligent disciple of God's word is going to earnestly seek God's teaching and direction, but he is also committed to thinking through and discerning how he can best apply what he is learning. And I don't think... It takes a great deal of skill 
I think if we set any time aside to think about it at all, we would find that it comes quite naturally to us to find verses to apply to our own life or how the sermon that week, we need to conform our life to it. I think it's a matter of sitting down and just spending time thinking about it. How diligently are you to think through what you have been taught at church with all your intellect to determine how best you can obey? Do you do that? Are you like the man who just walks away from the mirror and forgets what he has seen? If you are like me, you sit at this church and and the sermons reveal your sin. They hold up a mirror to your face and show you really how ugly you are. We do not want to walk away and forget what we need to change. You would not do that if there was, you know, if you were getting ready to go somewhere and you were all spiffed up and you were nice and, you know, your hair was sticking out in one spot or you had a, you know, spot of makeup over here or whatever. You wouldn't walk away from the mirror without wanting to fix that. We ought to apply the same principle to the things we learn in God's word. We go on to verse 35. The psalmist continually urgently pleads with God, lead me in the path of your commandments. And here, this is where we find his motivation for setting aside time to to think through how God's word applies to him. He says, for I delight in it. We see similar terms here in this verse. Lead, path, commandments. The psalmist is utterly dependent upon Yahweh to lead him. But he has made a strong commitment to obey. But yet he is completely dependent upon Yahweh to lead him. There is not an inkling of self-sufficiency here. And we would do well to remember that as we begin to do well and we begin to, you know, we start to grow and then our head gets big and we think, I've got this. I don't need God anymore. That's not the attitude here. We must always remember our complete dependence upon God. But I think the key here in this verse is the motivation of the psalmist. It is his delight to obey. Do you delight to walk in the ways God has ordained? Do you delight to submit your ways to his? If God's ways are burdensome to you, and you do not have a true desire to obey, then you're going to fail. You cannot truly ask God to teach you and give you understanding, and and you surely cannot make this kind of commitment if you do not have a desire to obey. So what if you don't have this strong desire to obey and commit to keeping God's word. Well, I think you should first consider 
examining yourself to see if you are in the faith. I don't want to rule that out. I continually do that, even today as a seminary student. That is not a practice that you ought to let go by. But I think it is safe to say that we all fail to have a strong desire for God's word as we ought. We all fail to have this strong desire of the psalmist. And I think that's where the psalmist goes next. The psalmist is then transitioning from the external application to the internal inclination to help us desire this more and more. The psalmist proceeds to beg God to do a work in his heart that he might be devoted to his ways. And that brings us to the second point of internal inclination in verses 36 to 38. Verse 36 reads, Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. The ESV uses the word incline my heart. And that's not a bad translation, but it might be a little better to use the word bend. It indicates a change of direction. The psalmist wants God to bend his heart, bend his mind and his will to God's testimonies. When the psalmist urgently requests that God bend his heart towards his testimonies, he's implying that it is already bent away from them. That is to say, our hearts are not naturally bent and inclined towards God's testimonies. Even as believers, we all know that if we are not in God's word, our hearts are naturally inclined to the flesh. Even as believers, our our hearts and our affections are drawn away by the world. And we ought to have the same urgent request to God to do this in our heart as well. He says, bend my heart to your testimonies. And then negatively, he says, and not to selfish gain. And the Hebrew word here is is more specific than just selfish gain. The Hebrew word has the idea of profit or material gain. So let me ask you this. Is your heart, that is your intellect and your will, more focused or inclined or bent toward material or selfish gain than it is to obeying God and growing in your sanctification. How much more sanctified would we be if we devoted as much time to working out our sanctification as we do working on advancing our career or our business or increasing profit margins? Even the material gain of looking at things, I need this, I want this. How can I get this? How can I get that? 
how much better off would we be spending some of that time? I'm not saying those things are wrong. As a, as a business person, you have to do those things. But do you spend any time thinking about using your intellectual power to think about how you can better apply God's word and grow? But once again, the psalmist is relying upon God here. He is asking God to do this work in him. Psalmist goes on, what else do we need? How else can we better apply God's word to our life and change our affections? We have to ask God to turn our hearts away from materialism, material gain, turn it towards his testimonies. And then in verse 37, he says, turn my eyes away from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. If you really want to get serious about obeying God's word and putting it into practice, all that you are learning, you're going to have to focus less on advancing in material gain and possessions, and you're going to have to keep your eyes from beholding worthless things. The word for worthless things here just refers to things that are hollow, trivial, unsubstantial, or unreal. And the verb for seeing or looking at here includes the idea of being attracted to, finding pleasure in. So think about what you look at, what your eyes find pleasure in or are attracted to that is completely worthless. And in our society, it's not a question about whether our eyes see worthless things. It's about how much we let them. Ever since the invention of the television, people's eyes have been attracted to it. And this has, as you know, only escalated as we all carry around a little screen that we spend way too much time looking at. The psalmist here is telling us that if we want to get serious about obeying God's word, we have to see our urgent need to ask God that he turn our eyes away from enjoying worthless things. We have to spend less time on Facebook, watching TV. I'm not saying it's wrong to watch TV or go to the movies, but we have to evaluate whether or not our screen time is a hindrance to our sanctification. Whether it is a hindrance to our spiritual life and growth. In the book of 1 Peter, Peter challenges his listeners to be sober-minded. He connects sobriety and intoxication to what influences our mind. So there's this term, there's this term sober-minded in 1 Peter. So Peter, he's connecting, he connects the influence of our mind to something like alcohol. Now imagine for a moment, if you drank alcohol like you take in entertainment, would you be able to consider yourself sober? I think we would be hard-pressed to find 
people in our culture who are not mentally drunk on entertainment. Peter challenged those who are dispersed in his book to guard their minds. Don't let things influence your mind. And I think this is the greatest struggle our society has. I mean, you look at the last thing, materialism and this, I don't think there's two greater vices in our society. Our psalmist here, he sees materialism and looking at worthless things as the greatest hindrance to obeying the word of God. If you don't have a desire to obey God's commands, it might be because you're not a believer, but we all falter, we all fail. So he says, in order to rectify that, in order to change your desires, change the things that you're putting in your mind. Turn your eyes away from worthless things. Turn your eyes away from focusing on material gain and devote some of that mental energy to God's word. How it better applies to your life, where you need to grow, memorizing scripture and the like. And if you feel convicted at this point, if you feel like the sword of the spirit has just been thrust into your soul, as it was mine when I was looking through this, if you felt like it has utterly struck you down, that is exactly what the psalmist feels. For look at the end of that verse, the end of 37. He says, revive me in your ways. He knows he's at the end of himself here, as we all do. He begs God to make him live in his ways, And that is exactly what we must do. We must urgently beg God to make us obey, to follow in his ways. He is utterly and hopelessly dependent upon God. And we should see ourselves in the very same situation. Once again, if the psalmist who wrote Psalm 119 is here, and this is his need, how much greater is ours? we come to verse 38 and it's here, this is, this is the low point. And I think the psalmist is seeking some encouragement from God. Look at verse 38. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. The word for confirm there was used to confirm or renew a covenant. And the psalmist is asking God for him to confirm the promises of the covenant in his heart that he might fear and worship God. He's asking God to confirm his relational promises to him. But what promise is the psalmist referring to here? And I think for that, just turn back a page to the first two verses of Psalm 119. Both Psalm 119 and Psalm 1 begin this way. And this is a promise from God. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. The word for blessed there, Jesus 
use the Greek equivalent on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does this word mean? Many of us just gloss over it, pass over it without thinking about it. This is a very important word, a very important promise here at the beginning of this chapter. The word for blessed refers to an enviable position of divine favor. I'll repeat that, an enviable position of divine favor. This is how the queen of Sheba, you remember, she came to see Solomon's wisdom. She was just enamored with the kingdom and enamored with Solomon's wisdom. And she said to the men who got to sit and listen to Solomon every day, they were blessed. An enviable position. She wanted to sit there and listen to Solomon every day. And those men got to, so she called them blessed. It is a position that everyone wants to be in. It is the enviable position of divine favor. There is no better place to be than to be the one called blessed by God. The blessed person is in the premier position before God. And I think the psalmist here is asking God to remind him of that promise. Bring him encouragement of his relational position before him. This is very much like Romans 7 and 8. If you look at Romans 7 and 8 quickly with me. Paul, you know, Romans 7, though it is debated, I think it's, it's a struggle as a believer with the flesh that we're, we see that here. But there's that struggle. If you look in verse 16, he says, now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer what I It is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good that I want, but the evil. I do not want, I I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells in me. So he's talking about this struggle of the flesh the struggle of desire to do what he knows is right. And yet in the first verse of eight, Paul reminds all who are believers, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I think in Psalm 119, he's doing the same thing. He's just gone through how he has failed to desire God appropriately, how he has failed to obey. And yet he begs God to remind him of his covenant promises to him, his commitment to him for encouragement. But that brings us Psalm 119 to the final point. The psalmist's holistic dependence on God. And really that's been evident throughout. Uh, this is just the icing on the cake. This is just one heading to hang your thoughts on for these final two verses. Psalm 119, verse 32. 
pardon me, 39. Turn away the reproach that I dread, for your rules are good. Reproach here has to do with guilt and shame. It can have to do with mocking if there's an enemy that has brought it against the psalmist. It's used that way. But here, there's no enemy. There's no one here bringing reproach against David. Here, this is an admission of David's guilt. And he's asking God to take it away. This is confession and a request for forgiveness. I think we all stand in need of the same thing. Who of us here today is irreproachable in these matters? Who of us here today is not guilty of materialism or turning our eyes to worthless things far too often? I don't think any of us here are irreproachable. Therefore, we ought to cry out to God as well. Lord, forgive me. Carry away my guilt. The psalmist knows that his sin is worthy of punishment. That's the the fear there, the dread. That word there is only used in reference to the covenant. It's only used five or six times. It's used of Moses when he stood in fear as the people made the golden calf. He stood in fear of what God was going to do. So the psalmist here knows that his sin is worthy of punishment, but he trusts that God's rules or his judgments and his decisions are good. He knows that if he seeks God's forgiveness, God is going to deal accordingly with him. I think it's important at this point, he turns wholly to God to remedy his sin problem. He does not try to make up for it. He doesn't say, I'll do this to make up for all the time I've wasted. I'll do this to make up for all the things that I've sought after. No, he utterly begs God for forgiveness. I think many of us, myself included, need to do the same. Then the final verse, Psalm 119, verse 40 The psalmist says, behold, I long for your precepts in your righteousness. Give me life. The behold there that's meant to grab our attention. It calls attention to what follows. And the psalmist wants us to see his reaffirmation of the desire for the word of God. And I think this is a perfect picture for believers. We desire God's word. We all want to do what God asks us to do. And yet we so often fail. And yet it is good for us to continue to say, God, forgive me, but also I desire your word. He's just confirming his commitment to continue to obey. Even in the midst of failure, This reminds me of Hosea when Hosea is commanding and telling the people in the last chapter of Hosea, 
He's telling them to repent. And he basically tells them, take these words. And this is what you say to God. Take these words. This is what you need to confess to God. And what he tells them to say to God when they confess and and to repent, he says, tell God, I will never do it again. That's the same thing we see here. Though the psalmist is struggling to obey, he's committing once again to set his desires and affections to obey God. And once again, the psalmist knows that he is utterly dependent upon God for this. He's utterly dependent upon God to make him live in the sphere of righteousness. We're talking about boundaries earlier. In righteousness is what it's talking about. The boundaries of righteousness. Not living in our own selfish desires. Not living for pleasing our eyes. But in the boundaries of righteousness, the psalmist pleads with God, make me live in your boundaries of righteousness. The psalmist has requested over and over in the psalm to be taught, to be brought into understanding, to be inclined, have his heart changed, to keep his eyes from vanity and the like. And here he sums it all up with the all-encompassing request that God make him live within the boundaries of righteousness, not live in his own way, but in God's way. As we go away from here today, I pray that you understand your need, your urgent need as the psalmist has, your dependence upon God to live according to his word And urgently beg him, as the psalmist does here, to do a work in your heart and make you walk according to his ways, according to his righteousness. And in closing, as the psalmist prayed for himself, I think it only fitting to close praying this for us as we are in even greater need of it than he was. So let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we confess that we fall so woefully short of all that you would have us do, of obeying your word wholeheartedly with all that is in us. And I pray, as the psalmist says here, Lord, teach us your word. Don't only teach us, but give us understanding, give us wisdom, Lord, and give us the heart that we need to devote our time and our energy and our mind and our intellect and our will to obeying it. Lord, I pray that you keep our eyes from looking at worthless things that have no value whatsoever. They are hollow and empty. Bend our hearts 
to you this morning, Lord. And as our failure is evident, Lord, confirm your promise to us this morning. That though we fail, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. What greater comfort is there than that? We praise you, Lord, that you sent your son to pay the penalty that we deserve. May we live in light of that, Lord. Take our reproach away. Forgive us, Lord. And we commit today to seeking you, turning our affections towards you, to obeying your commands. We are wholly dependent upon you to do this in us, Lord. Amen.